place to contemplate. Always listen to the silence before a Dharma talk. That's the Dharma talk. It's already begun. And it continues after I stop speaking. First day of session. It's a settling in period. And it's worthwhile going over basics um, once again as to what we're doing here and how to uh, how, how to cultivate the mind as best as we can in this brief time that we've got. Last night when I was giving some opening words while we were sitting, I mentioned that um, meditation or Zen practice is not for the faint-hearted. You know, and it requires <clears throat> looking into our delusion and our attachment. And I found in doing some reading this morning to prepare for this talk that those same words were echoed in a colleague of mine that some of you know or have met personally, um, John Kabat-Zinn, who um, has been the founder of um, bringing secular mindfulness into, into the world. And at the beginning of his retreats, he says the same words, only a little bit more. Meditation is not for the faint-hearted, nor for those who routinely avoid the whisperings of their own heart. And good words. Mm-hmm. Good reminding words as to what we're doing here today. Now, I don't know what the whisperings of your heart are, but if I, if I listen to the whisperings of my own heart, they say things like, be truthful, right? Don't be false. It says things like, love, don't hate. It says things like, be open, don't be petty-minded. It says things like, uh, watch out for stubborn pride. It says things like, Listen to the suffering when it's there. What's that telling you? Mm -hmm. And also when I listen to the whisperings of my heart, it also says, play. Mm -hmm. Play. Mm -hmm. It's not all serious. But when we avoid the whisperings of our own heart, and we all do from time to time, We avoid the whisperings of our own heart by listening to the sound of our own voice too much. This voice, not that voice, this voice. Listening to our own thoughts too much and ruminating over them. Filling our lives up with constant entertainment or constant busyness. (coughs) They're some of the ways in which we routinely avoid listening to the whisperings of our own heart. Or we go the other way into apathy, and just kind of dulled down and switched off. You know? Not really thinking much, but not really being alive very much either. So they're just some of the ways in which we avoid the whisperings of our own heart. 
You know, <clears throat> it's good to look at words sometimes. Words are important tools in terms of um, helping convey what Zen practice is about or what Dharma practice is about. And the traditional words that are used, you know, that around delusion is greed, hatred and ignorance. Now, they're useful words. Um, they're very useful words. And it's not as though I really want to um, cha uh, change them, um, <clears throat> but sometimes to make them a little more accessible to people is that greed is grasping, um, hatred is aversion, and the word that resonates most for me now at the moment in terms of ignorance is apathy. Mm -hmm. Apathy is a, is a good word, you know, to describe where our minds are, I don't know, it's just sort of dulled down, it's just sort of tuned out. It's not really thinking anything much, um, doing anything much, but it's not, it's not alive and present either. Mm -hmm. And there are all the things that we're, that we're watching arise in the mind if we really seriously um, take on this practice. Mm -hmm. Let's begin by going back to the practice principles that we recite over and over again. <clears throat> May I remind you that the practice principles were meant for you. Mm -hmm. Each one individually, not the person sitting next to you, not the people you live with, not the world out there. Those words are meant for you and for me. And you can get into a kind of, because we do them so routinely, you can get into a kind of apathetic way of just reciting them, but you're not really there with the words and what the words are, are, are reminding us of. So please, when you recite those practice principles, as we do regularly, um, practice them not just in a rote manner, but be aware of each line, you know, and personalise each line. That's what they're there for. Or the evening message, when the timekeeper gives the evening message. Really listen to the words. They're a, they're a waking up call of how brief life is and how little time we've got to actually awake. <clears throat> but if we take each of the lines of the practice principles, caught in a self-centred dream, that's the place where we have to start. Um, years ago there was a word which was used, I think it was um, coined by uh, Chogun Trumpa in a book called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, where he used the word, the words, or the phrase, a spiritual bypass. And a bit, spiritual bypass is just wanting to get to some awakened, pleasant, calm place, some Satori experience, some Kensho experience, um, some peaceful place that we can exist in and just bypass all the difficult work of looking into our self-centeredness you know, and the delusion and attachment and the apathy that goes with it, which runs our life. I won't look at all that, that's too unpleasant. You know? I'll, just, I'll just go for this experience. Right? Well, if you want to do that, you might as well just go down to the pharmacy. Right? Take drugs, you know, so that's a better way of getting there, it's cheaper. Less pain involved, right? 
That's how you do a spiritual bypass. It's possible to do meditation um, uh, in a very self-absorbed kind of way where you don't actually break out of the shell of self-centeredness. It can, in a subtle way, just reinforce it. Because all you're interested in is your own welfare. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't actually go beyond that in any way. So that's where we need to start. It's a recognition that you, me, all of us, to some level or another, are caught in that self-centred dream. And a lot of people find it really hard to, um, in this day and age particularly, a lot of people find it hard actually just to stay with that in any mature kind of way. Because I think that it's shaming them. Oh, it's making me feel ashamed. You know? um, if you really take it in, um, it's just saying that you share the same delusion and attachment as the rest of humanity. Right? You're no different. You know? We all share in that to some degree or another. So if we're ashamed, we're all ashamed. You know? But one of the things with the, with the word shame these days, it's seen um, by people in my profession a lot, it's just a negative thing. And that, that flows through to the general public as so it's just a terrible emotion you know, that we should avoid at all costs. Little do people know, and, and often a lot of Buddhist practitioners, little do they know that the word, there was a word, I forget the actual um, uh, Pali word, but there was a word for shame. And it was actually highly regarded back then. It was actually a good thing to feel shame in the healthy sense of the word. Uh, because if you, if you had a, 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 if you were sensitive to shame, it sort of indicated, well, you, you just really wouldn't want to mindlessly go around and hurting other people because you'd feel so bad about it. Mm -hmm. So it was seen as a positive thing. And you wouldn't want to be just sort of caught up in self-indulgence because you'd feel embarrassed about it. Yeah. So, it was, it was, so it's not in itself a negative thing. You know, it depend, if, if shame triggers off a whole negative thinking process about oneself, about how terrible I am, yes, that's, that's not good. But that's where it's linked into the negative thinking spiraling. It's just a sense, yeah, I'm self-centered. You know, I, I'm part of that human condition. That's just a place to start from. It's just a recognition. And the second line, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream, is really just another way of reiterating the second noble truth the grasping and aversion and apathy is what keeps that self-centred separateness going in our lives. <clears throat> but it emphasises the holding part, the attachment part. Delusion, in a sense, from a Zen perspective, um, all thinking is delusion, right? It's not as though there's rational thinking and irrational thinking and the rational thinking's not deluded. It's kind of in a relative way it is. But from an absolute point of view, um, all thinking is delusional because it's just a commentary on what's actually occurring. It's not what's really occurring. Right? That's what really happened then. You call it a clap right, or a loud noise. 
that's what it is. And attachment, we all know what attachment is. It's kind of, it's a, it's a, a cling to things. And what's at the core of attachment is I just want things to be pleasant for me. I don't want any unpleasantness, no thanks in my life, just pleasantness, that's all I want. And Joko um, really has that wonderful um, uh, chapter from her book, which I've put in the reading, The Cocoon of Pain, which looks at all of the different varieties of ways in which we try to avoid pain in our life. And serious practice, as she says at the end of that chapter, is when we realise that we can't avoid it. We spent the rest of our life with a strategy trying to avoid it, but then we realise when it doesn't work, well, it's good. Good to realise it didn't work. Because then we may go deeper into our life in some way. And then the third line, our life as it is, I'm the only teacher. Um, it really explains it all in what we're doing here is shifting out of this little self-absorbed bubble that we're in that separates us off from life into, into the largeness of all this. The largeness of it. And also the specificness of it. The taste of that apple just then, right? Um, just the sound of the bell, just the sound of those beautiful birds this morning when the sun came up. They're specific and yet they exist in something which was, is timeless and, and uh, open completely. That's what we open into. Um, when the little self starts to dissolve and diminish. And what's wonderful about it <coughs> is that it's so, it's always so vibrant in a way. It's full of colours and sounds and smells and tastes. And each time we return to it, even though it might be unpleasant, there's something vibrant in it at all. Our mind is dulled down by this constant ruminating that we all go through. Being just this moment, compassion's way, it's not quite so obvious what this means compared to the previous lines. Um, but being just this moment means that there is no self that we're clinging to, you know, or attached to. There's a self in a sense that there's a person. But there's nothing that we're clinging to or holding on to. In that sense, as we practice, this division between self and other just dissolves more and more. Mm -hmm. And as that division dissolves, it's just this moment. And because there's just this moment, then compassion naturally arises. Now, one way of looking at this is that there's compassion or a self-cherishing that we can have um, but it's very limited because it's really just focused on what I want and what's good for me 
Um, in a sense, being just this moment, compassion's way where it opens up into something beyond me, is kind of like big selfishness rather than little selfishness. In the sense that the more that you expand your sense of identity, you know, you see that you, you seamlessly seamlessly connected into your family or your neighbourhood or the environment, you know, to the world, the larger the container comes, then you want to be compassionate towards it because it's you. Mm -hmm. It's you. So of course you want the best for it. Of course you'd want to be kind for it. It's kind of like big selfishness, not little selfishness. A few other things around basics. Um, the, the prime focus of doing a session or doing one period of sasin is, it, at least from a Zen perspective, it's not particularly psychological. We, we're not, it's not our job here to analyse ourselves for the whole week. Mm -hmm. Now, stuff might come up about your past spontaneously, if it does, then, then you notice it and you label it. So it's not, not about um, evading it, because that become, become some of the whisperings of the heart that arise as well, like maybe painful experiences from the past. But our, our task is just to watch it in its transient states, like energy going through us. Like I said last night, we don't need to get absorbed in the content of it. We just need to witness it. Mm -hmm. Witness it. And pass. So that's where labelling comes in. We're just there with the moment, watching the breath, hearing sounds coming and going, then something emerges out of your mind. And uh, it might have a lot of emotion connected to it. Mm -hmm. And you label it, you take notice of it, and then you immediately come back into the body. And if there's any emotional resonance that associated with it, you just stay with it in the body. And this is not emotional suppression, right? but in a sense it's thinking suppression. It's not emotional suppression. You just come back into any resonance which is there. And any resonance which is there, like a, an emotional pain in the body, is the present moment. Um, revealing itself in some way. Mm -hmm. So you stay with it. But please don't get caught in spirals of thinking you know, about this stuff. There was, uh, in the time that um, I went over to see uh, Joko, Diana and I went over to see Joko and did session, there was um, a long time student of Joko's whose name was Stan Block and Stan was a well-known psychiatrist in California and he wrote a book on practice and apparently um, Joko was very pleased with the message that he was kind of trying to convey in that book which is a simple variation of what I'm talking about but his, his practice um, guidelines is just notice what you're thinking if, if it comes up and then return to the environment and stay with the environment, whatever the environment is. And then you might notice you're caught up in another little ruminating pattern 
That's what it is, return to the environment. Many people have used this phrase before, and it's the name of uh, John Kabat-Zinn's book that I was referring to before, Coming to Your Senses. It's what Zen practice is about, coming to your senses. Hearing, seeing, smelling, touching, tasting. The gifts that we have. And we, sometimes we don't, we ignore those gifts and think that what we're thinking about is more important. When those gifts of sight and sound and so on are so precious. So Zen practice is, in t- is returning to the environment, it's coming to your senses, it's coming to perception which is there all the time that we miss. Have you ever had the experience like I have in the morning sometimes where I've just realised I've been caught up in this little loop of thinking and then I've heard the karawongs, you know, warbling and I've gone, I must have missed about five minutes of that. What a pity. Hmm? What a pity. make reference to another um, well-known Dharma teacher, Alan Wallace. <coughs> Alan Wallace refers to the condition that we all have as human beings, and it's a play on a, um, a psychological disorder. So we've all got OCD. Now, OCD normally means obsessional compulsive disorder, but what he's referring to is obsessional cognitive disorder. We all think too much. We all think too much. And lastly, um, to bring uh, some guidelines about session just beyond individual practice into our communal practice together, please don't just think of practice in terms of um, whether we're what we're doing today or tomorrow, whatever. Don't just think in terms of this session meeting my requirements or not, but also think in terms of what am I giving to this session? What what, what is it that I can give to everyone who is here so that we make this, you know, a really great experience for everyone? Thank you.